Welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm. This is the interview show that gets deep in the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I am your host, Scott Dr. GX Wolfi. If you enjoy this programming, subscribe to the Funkin' Stuff channel on YouTube, which is where Truth and Rhythm lives, and be an advocate by spreading the word among fellow funk, jazz, and R&B music lovers. Join Truth and Rhythm's membership program through Patreon. You can also submit a direct donation to the cause anytime at funkandstuff.net. At that site, you can also purchase the book, Everything's on the One, The First Guide of Funk. Shop for official Truth and Rhythm and Funk and Stuff merchandise and use the Amazon links for all of your online purchases, which allocates a percentage to this show. For those of you who go the extra step in supporting the show, you have my heartfelt gratitude for allowing us to continue to shine the light on those special artists whose quest is to find truth in rhythm. I am pleased to welcome to the Truth Rhythm Mothership drummer Dave Watts, composer, arranger, and founder of Boulder, Colorado's funky musical collective, The Motet. Also incorporating soul, jazz, world, and funk uh, of folk music, definitely funk too, into its sound. Since 2002, the group has released nine studio albums, been a fixture on the festival circuit, and consistently lit up stages with super grooving sets and dazzling musicality. The band's latest album, All Day, was just released earlier this year. Dave, thank you for coming. How are you? Pretty good, Scott. Thanks for having me, man. A pleasure. So yeah. you're just back from a gig. I know you're uh, catching up on some rest, uh, but uh, yeah. where are you today? Where, where are you? I'm in Boulder. I'm in my house in Boulder. Just uh, got a few days off before the next run. We're heading up into the mountains this coming weekend, so trying to catch up on stuff in between. Gets a little schizophrenic going out every weekend, but uh, you know, I try and like squeeze stuff in in between tours. You guys are such road warriors for so long now. You know, I, I must have been very strange during the pandemic. Yeah, I mean, it was great. I loved it. You know, like it was a very you know bizarre experience. You know, that first week of uh where the gig started dropping off and we were like oh okay i guess we got the weekend off you know and then it was like oh i guess we got two weeks off you know and it just kept coming and pretty soon it was like wow six months off man what's that going to be like but it's you know musicians we always find a way to keep ourselves busy we don't need gigs to necessarily you know find ways to be creative you know we're at home I think a lot of people got their um, home recording setups dialed in. I know that I did and um, spent a lot of time, like people were learning how to use Zoom and video and that sort of thing. So, you know, I, I filled my time pretty easily not touring. We were just talking about how, man, touring, we spend so much time just in an airport or in the hotel lobby, you know, traveling, driving, so much time not playing music, you know, and then you do a gig and sometimes a gig might be an opener and you're playing for an hour or something, but you just, you know, you realize you did three days of travel for an hour's worth of music. So when I'm at home, like the, during the pandemic, I played more music than I do normally mm. just because I was getting behind my kid every day and shedding and writing tunes and working on how to figure out my, you know, the, recording setup and video setup. So I found myself uh, even more busy making music when the pandemic hit. That's one thing I theorized, you know, once it started extending itself, I was always thinking, you know, I bet we're going to get some awesome music coming out of it. You know, yeah, everyone's hunkered right. down and, you know, the right. restless energy and, right. you know, yeah. yeah it, it seemed like it went one way or the other. 
some bands were like you know putting out all this content and other bands were like taking vacations because <laughs> that's kind of like you know it's it kind you can get your head together you know by not playing music and actually come up with a lot of creative creative ideas when you step away for a minute you know but i always just uh man it just i always feel that way when i've when I'm overwhelmed with music and I'm like, oh, I just need to step away. And then, you know, a day or so, or so into that, I'm just like, damn, I want to play. You know what I mean? It just calls me back. And then I find just like the ideas circulate in my head and I'm just like called back to my home studio or whatever it is I'm working on. And, yeah. uh, you know, it's just, it's kind of an obsession. It's a little OCD, but that's what keeps us, you know, creative. I, I'm I'm guessing though when you got back to it though and got back on stage that that felt pretty darn good. Yeah, yeah. Well, the first man, the first gigs were weird, you know, because we're we play dance music, you know, and there was all these sit down shows and like people in their little pods. Even some of these shows where people weren't allowed to dance, you know, like as if like dancing made COVID worse. So it was like a little bizarre, like Footloose shows. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah it was a little bizarre i mean it was cool because you know you could try some different you know maybe more mellow or jazzier stuff you might not normally do mm -hmm. but um but we were just happy to be playing at all at that point so uh you know it definitely felt good to get back into it but it really feels good now i feel like honestly it's like just now in the last like six months or so even less I feel like shows are really popping off and and shows are really like filling up with people getting down the way they used to. And I just got off a jam cruise and, uh, you know, we're just out there like in the jam room, packed house, people hugging, sharing drinks. You know what I mean? I'm like, all right, pandemic's officially over. <laughs> you know, it's like it definitely like felt like we we're back to the sort of rowdiness we're used to and that um, sounds fantastic you know? it was great it was a great feeling yeah i mean groove and funk music you know that's not the kind of music that's meant to be uh taken in just uh calmly sitting and keeping yeah. distance and you know yeah no i like that kinetic experience you know that's when i know i'm doing my job when i see people dancing and sort of losing themselves in it you know that sort of cathartic experience you know, they're walking out of the venue a different person than they were when they showed up, you know, and it's the same for the musicians, you know, it transforms you. You will like, you know, like after a long day of travel and then soundtrack and yada, yada, it's like, you feel a little like a little, you know, beat up or tired, just energetically at a low, you know, but when you get on stage and you start just, playing and getting into it and making it a physical endeavor uh it just changes your whole being you walk off stage you're like oh wow i feel way more energized than i did when i showed up and you feel like you transformed your, your physical being and your psychological being you know it's just it's transformative and that's like you know that's i know it's music's different for everybody and there's different experiences but for me that's really what i want it keeps me healthy you know I think Dave, especially for the drummer, you know, because the drummer is the one that's keeping that rhythm throughout for the audience. And then that energy coming back, keeping the drummer going through maybe a long, yeah. you know, tiring set, but just invigorating you to, yeah, to, to pound it out. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I was talking to, um, we're on Jam Cruise and I was talking to, to uh, Carl Denson and, uh, he was commenting on, um, I'm on the Andy Frasco set, you know, and he was saying uh, he was just amazed at how fucking energetic they are, you know, how much they're moving around and just, and I was like, you know, yeah, how, how, I was talking to one of the guys at the band. I was like, how are you going to keep that up when you're Carl's age? And Carl's like, man, nobody, nobody stays healthy when they're older by like moving slow. You know, his whole, you know, comment on it was about just, that that is the healthiest thing you can do for yourself is you know expressing energy when you're playing music and just moving your body making it a physical thing and look at him he's like you know what 70 something or 70 years old 
sixties and late sixties. And he's looking great, you know? So I think that's, there's truth to that for sure. Definitely. Yeah. I have some of the older drummers that are on as guests, you know, like Earl Young is in his eighties and he's still, you know, whipping yeah. those, that kit, you know? So yeah, it's, it's, yeah, I love it. It's inspiring, right? Yeah. Very inspiring. You know? It's inspiring. Yeah. So Dave, you know, as you know, um, we're talking about, I've had Joey on the show. Um, so you're the second member of the band. Um, I want to, you know, you know, advocate for viewers and listeners. If they're not familiar with the motet, definitely go check it out. I was trying to remember how I first discovered the group and I'm not sure if it was through, you know, just picking up an early album or if, um, you know, I caught a recording on, on the archive.org or, you know, something like that. But I remember mm -hmm. it was, you know, 20, you know, 2000 age area somewhere in there. And, uh, Ever since then, I've been hooked, you know, nice. and uh, I especially amazing. love those um, recordings that were on there of the Halloween shows, you know. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah, that was we, a big influence for us, those Halloween shows. You probably heard like a Prince or maybe even like Earth, Wind and Fire. Mm -hmm. We've run the gamut of, uh, of great 70s funk acts. It's really a um, educational experience putting together those shows because um you know we wouldn't just feature an album or a greatest hits kind of thing we would just run their whole discography and you know uh explore youtube live versions of all the material we could sort of gather from a certain artist prince or <clears throat> even like jamiroquai tower power we probably did a dozen of those shows and it really informed our approach to songwriting you know especially the vocal stuff um but man it's like when you do that and you're like all right we're going to do two sets of music of our favorite artist and you go down that rabbit hole it's just it's crazy how much you learn and this was one of them i'm wearing you did a head what do you got there head what is it oh yeah. yeah see it yeah <laughs> that yeah. was our first one that was our very first one we our singer jans was out on the road with Charlie Hunter and um, we we're trying to figure out what we we're going to do for Halloween. Cause he's going to be gone. And the Fox theater offered us to date. And uh, we were just, we were loving on, you know, all that Herbie stuff at that point. And so um, we were just like, let's do a head honors show. You know, we got a uh, stage props and had a bunch of sort of jungle, like, you know, you know, props to put around stage and, we all dressed up and man, it was like such a fun experience. Like I said, we learned so much musically from doing it. We became a better band by doing it. We're like, we have to do this every year. And we did it for probably 14 or 15 years after that. I have the full list in front of me. So I have that luxury. <laughs> uh, you named a, lo a lot of them I had highlighted, but you know, also talking heads, Sly Stone, uh, Stevie Wonder. Yep. Um, and the thing for me is, you know, I'm not into tribute bands um, and I don't, you know, get off on just, you know, rote versions, you know, cover mm -hmm. tunes that are just real yeah. basic and, and sound right. as much as they can to the original. Right. I like ones where they're really inhabited and maybe take them a little somewhere else, right. but that the musicians have enough chops where they can do that and actually get uh, inhabit the groove yeah. and the songs, you know, yeah. take them, take them somewhere. And I felt you guys did that. So yeah. I knew right away, you know, this is a special band. Yeah. Like, and also the arrangement, I think that's my forte is, um, is arrangements. You know, I think a lot of drummers are, are the same way. Like we really sort of embrace an arrangement of a song and how it affects the energy of the crowd and, getting creative with an arrangement so that it becomes something different than the way you may have heard of a song before, you know? So it's really fun to, to take material from your favorite artist, but then rearrange it in a way that becomes like your own statement. Um, yeah. Like you said, like doing, doing a song wrote just the way it sort of you've heard before is like, eh, you know what I mean? Like, what's the point? Mm -hmm. so uh yeah i think we, we spent a lot of time trying to do that with that material all the p-funk stuff figuring out ways to segue song to song and 
different breakdowns to, you know, expand on a certain portion of the song. It's really fun. I mean, I did that for um, Jam Cruise this past time. I got hired to run the Super Jam. So I had to uh, put together material for like between 40 and 50 musicians that were already on the boat. It was quite a, <laughs> it's quite an endeavor. It was not an easy task. It wasn't like, you know, 40 musicians at the same time. It was like every song had a different lineup and I had to sort of wrangle all the different musicians for the different lineups and, uh, you know, sort of put all that together, not just musically, but logistically, you know, charts and, you know, set time and rehearsal time and trying to figure out who might be good for what song and that sort of thing. So it was, it was quite a learning experience, but, um, you know, I try to take those songs and change them up a little bit so that, you know, they really like suited the moment. They suited the players and they suited the sort of, you know, environment they were playing in, whether it was changing the tempo a little bit or switching the key or, expanding on a certain area of the song so there could be solos and that sort of thing uh but i just i feel like that's kind of my forte in a lot of ways well it definitely um is highlighted on on these sets we're talking about nice um and also like you said going deep in the catalog you know pulling out some some nuggets that you know you don't hear very often that's like also and you know if you're a big fan of that band and you hear that you've pulled that out. It's like, okay, these guys, they, they're deep into it. They know what they're yeah. doing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Especially with YouTube. I mean, it's amazing what you can find on YouTube. You know, I love that just exploring and not only a, you know, a band's, you know, version of their own song, but other people's interpretation too. I just think it's fascinating well, how you can interpret a song so many different ways. But, um, you know, with P-Funk, it's just endless so many versions of the songs and you, you get to sort of kind of get into the psychology of George or the other members of the band when you see, you know, different versions of the song sort of following the different players who are in the band at a certain time period. And you kind of get to know the eras of a group, you know, Earth, Wind and Fire. You get to know their eras and what was happening with them in the 80s versus the late 70s versus the early 70s, you know. And seeing all the different players coming and going, it's just, uh, it's really fascinating, you know, it becomes like this sort of biography of the band. Yeah, well, especially with P-Funk, because there's such a huge cast of musicians. Yeah. Um, but, um, yeah, I guess two that you didn't do that maybe I would have suggested, and you're not doing them anymore, I don't know if you'll, if you'll revive it, but if you do, um, Ohio Players and um, Isley Brothers. Oh, dude, I wanted to do the Isley Brothers so bad this, that we played a show at Cervantes past January, and I was just pushing and pushing to get, to get us to do the Isley Brothers. It's like my favorite. It's like my happy place listening to their music, you know, <clears throat> and uh, it kind of would have been perfect for us right now because we don't have horn sections, so we could kind of embrace that music a little more because it's... Uh, you know, it's not about the horns as much as it is about the grooves and the rhythm section. Uh, Isley, it, that's great. The Ohio players is one that I've definitely thought about. And um, also the Barquets. Mm-hmm. I really think we could we could do the Barquets justice. People don't know that, that band. That's the problem is I think that uh, some of the guys feel like maybe we've uh, exhausted the bands that people were actually sort of know about in our scene and uh, that that we might not um, sort of, you know, get the excitement from the audience from some of these groups. But I think that part of why we did it in the past was to educate people about the music, you know, and the mere fact that we're doing a tribute to a certain group, I think gets people excited, especially if they don't know the group, because then they're even more like curious, you know? Uh, So I think that I would love to do all three of those groups, you know, different times. Well, yeah, I mean, the Isley Brothers are, are in the hall, you know, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Even I mean, they're pretty. Yeah, they're 
their 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 yeah their repertoire and the expanse of the repertoire the fact that they wrote twist and shout in the 50s right and then they watched the beatles play that song on the ed sullivan show now, there was a story of um, ernie isley being a kid watching that with Jimi hendrix sitting next to him and his older brother on the other side <laughs> It's just like, wow, man, these guys have been through it, you know? Exactly. Yeah. And uh, don't quite get the due for that. Yeah, they don't, you know, and they should. Um, really interesting. I don't know what they were doing in the 70s live. That's one thing that kind of um, always throws me is like um, Ernie was playing drums on all those later 70s tracks, you know, which are my favorite Isley Brother tracks. Yeah, And he's playing drums. I'm like, how did they record that? You know, did he play guitar to a click? But, you know, I've checked it out and it's not metronomic. So he must have played drums first and then laid guitar down afterwards. Yeah, I think probably drums with uh, his brother Marvin on the bass. And But then I can't find any live 70s stuff. So I'm wondering, like, they just didn't even play live, you know, when they started recording those records. But I would love to see what you know they sounded like live. Yeah, I was actually just point. thinking about that this week. It's coincidental, actually. Um, that you know, where's the live footage of the Isley brothers from the mid and late 70s? You know, yeah, it's like they yeah, were huge platinum right. albums every time out, right? Where's, you know, where's the footage? right? There's none of it's on YouTube, yeah. Like it's pretty interesting. Someone needs to pick the brain because that they're they're still doing. I saw a tiny desk concert recently. With Ernie and Ronald still doing it, you know, which is just so fucking inspiring, man. Like, that's like six decades. Is that right? At least, right? Yeah. It's like 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Seventh decade, right? On their seventh. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. they, (laughs) They deserve accolades just for that. Yeah. 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 But back to you guys. Um, so how did you first get into drums? You know, what, what drove you to them? Oh, I mean, I'm kind of a black sheep with a family. So it wasn't like I came from a musical upbringing or anything like that. I just, um, when I was a kid, man, I just loved Kiss. I saw Kiss, you know, all the makeup and Peter Chris with his boots and, you know, just the show. I thought it was the coolest thing ever, you know? I mean, I love the Beatles. I love, I love music growing up, you know? Uh, and I'm not sure what just made me want to be a drummer, except for just seeing drummers and thinking they're the coolest thing ever, you know? And the exposure was different back then, you know, in the seventies, you know, it's not like we had YouTube you know, or Spotify or anything like that. It was like you listen to the radio and um, and you heard ads for bands, you know, coming to perform somewhere. But, uh, you know, the exposure was a different thing and you kind of had to search it out a lot more. So there was a lot of more, there's a lot more mystery, I think, behind it at all. It's very like, it all seemed very just, I don't know, just mysterious and, exciting so i just i just like just got turned on by those those kind of rock groups uh and um and i just started you know studying drums as part of like the school band like that was the first time i played had a pair of sticks and a snare drum practice pad was a school band I didn't get my first kit until I was like 12. Did you ever get to go see Kiss? No, never saw Kiss. I saw Toto. That was my first concert when I was probably 13. So it was all, it was all the bands that were on the radio. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of good music on the radio back then. You know, it, it, it spanned sort of, you know, rock radio spanned genres. I mean, you know, I loved Chic. I loved, you know, I didn't know why I loved it, but, you know, I love Freak Out and uh, Good Times because that was on the radio and I just loved the sound of that music. So I, I definitely love disco music too. 
Um, you know, and I guess I just love the groove, you know, so there was part of it was like the look of the, the rock bands, but part of it was just, I love the groove of drums and the way I felt, especially with the, that sort of late seventies disco stuff that was on the radio. And that, that stuff was pervasive, you know? Um, and it was, it was cool because disco at that point still was funky and it wasn't, you know, it wasn't um, so clicked out. It wasn't on a grid. It was still funk musicians playing, you know, that's a mechanical. Or, yeah. Yeah. They're, you know, the kick wasn't as interesting as it was in the early seventies. You didn't hear the syncopations like you did with Sly and the Family Stone or <clears throat> Earth, Wind and Fire, earlier 70s stuff. But um, it still, was, it, it was funky, you know what I mean? And it had pocket and it had the bass lines were super cool. Uh, so, you know, disco music still had something, you know, creative and funky to say. Later on, I think it got, you know, the 80s things got more square. And then disco got a bad rap. I kind of like took it to heart, you know, when disco got a bad rap. And so I kind of was anti-disco from like my, once I started playing drums and I started getting more into jazz, and, you know, I felt like that was real music, jazz and jazz fusion. And, you know, I kind of like looked down on disco and, and even, even funk music. My buddy would, remember my buddy would play me, uh, p-funk tracks and i was like ah this is disco it's not that cool and i would play him stanley clark and be like this is funk and he'd be like that's jazz fusion that's not that cool <laughs> so there's like you see that like sort of budding of heads about like you know what's cool and not cool in music now i realize it's you know it's all cool you know it's like good music is good music and it doesn't necessarily have to be a part of a certain genre uh but it wasn't until later until you know after i sort of got out of Berkeley and started touring with the band that I got more into, you know, reaching back into funk music and realizing like how great that music is and how it can be every bit as creative as fusion and more something that, um, that, um, you know, my sort of fan base at that point would want to hear, you know, sort of getting into the jam scene. Who who would you um, say are a couple of your most influential drummers for what you do? Oof. That's such let's a say, hard let's question. Let's limit, limit it to five. Such a hard question, man. I mean, there's so many, you know? Like, I, I still listen to Tony Allen and just am amazed. And, and, like, my most influential drummers aren't necessarily the drummers that, um, that I play like. You know what I mean? Like my number one drummer growing up was John Bonham, you know, and to this day, like I've, I've been doing a little Zeppelin tribute recently. And to this day, I'm like, God, the way he played those fills and the way he just played the time, you know, it's just, it's unbelievable. Like it's so him and so consistently him. It has such a feeling to it, you know, that, and I, I can't even come close to replicating it. I could just do what I do and, you know, and, you know, mess around with some of his ideas. Well, he's still, I consider him one of my most influential drummers, yet I don't sound like him at all, you know? Honestly, I, I would play more like, I would choose to play more like Ernie Isley than I would like, you know, somebody I've listened to a million times, you know, like Dennis Chambers, you know? I would choose to play well, like, well, I guess there's those that you admire and those that you emulate. Yeah. Yeah. Like, like the barcade, like I, I tend to stick. I just, for myself personally, I, I feel like I just sound better when I'm playing simpler and playing like more in the pocket and playing less. So I would sound more like, you know, the drummer for the barcades than I would for like, you know, uh, Bigfoot, you know, Jerome Braley. Um, you know, uh, so it's like for, you know, emulating and inf being influenced by, I guess, are different things, but I suppose, you know, you listen to, you know, drummers and they just, it get, it seeps in regardless, especially if you really 
get into it, you know, like Steve Gadd or Vinny Caliuta, um, you know, so many great players out there. It's hard to even just narrow it down. But, uh, you know, part of my influence is also just the sound of the drums, you know, not even just the playing, but the sound of the drums. And then there's like modern day influences too, like, you know, like Sput or Deitch, you know, um, uh, Nikki Glaspie, you know, all the new players that are just, that I get to see live because I play the same festivals, you know, um, those are the guys that influence me as well because I get to really feel what they're doing with the crowd and the energy of the room and with the musicians they're playing with, you know, those guys are as much an influence on me as any of the, you know, classic drummers of the seventies. Did you ever program uh, solos, drum solos into the set or is it not part of the repertoire? No, I, I definitely do solos for sure. I love it. You know, I'd like to do more. I'd like to uh, shed more. It's kind of funny. It's like, Solos are where you can kind of make a statement where people might be like, oh, that guy's badass. Like you might play the perfect shit for the whole song and it's killer. But And, and the best thing about it is no one notices you. You know what I mean? Like the greatest drummers, sometimes like people don't notice at all until they take a solo. And then all of a sudden the spotlight's on and people are like, oh, that's a great drummer. So it's kind of like important to do that, I think, just to sort of wake people up like, oh, that's right. There's this badass drummer back there. Um, Alvin Ford's really good at that. Alvin will just say, he'll just be in the pocket the whole set, you know what I mean? And you know he can do so much more. And then, and then like, you know, he'll get unleashed and just faces will melt, you know? Yeah, well, the restraint is yeah, it's it's great skill. Similar for the bass guy too, you know, if the bass players and get a solo at some point. Yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, I'm lucky enough to have a bass player who just can crush solos all night. (laughs) We could give him one every song, and he's just he's just as enthusiastic for each one. Yeah. Now, do you tune your drums? Yeah. Yeah, it's like that's a uh, that's actually an important skill when you're um, touring with backline. We'll do tours where I'm backlining every night, you know, like seven shows, seven different drum sets. So really, that puts you in a position to like really have to figure out how to tune the drums to the sound that you want, you know. Part of it's the head and part of it's the the kind of drum you're playing. But you just get good at figuring out how to get the sound that you want out of whatever drum you're playing. So when you're backlining every night, that just kind of forces you into that. And then you get you get good at uh, doing it quickly because you kind of have to, you know. And what inspired you to start the band and where did the name come from? Uh, well, I moved to Colorado in the mid nineties and I was kind of freelancing around, uh, at that point when I was in Boston, I had a a group that I was writing music for, but when I moved to, um, to Boulder in the mid nineties, I spent a couple years just freelancing around and playing jam sessions and putting together groups and doing a lot of acid jazz doing like some jazz, you know, but more just funk, funk jams and that sort of thing. Um, but eventually I got sick of just playing other people's music, you know, wanted to play my own music. And I like writing music. And I like sort of having a vision for how I want, uh, you know, the vibe of, uh, of an evening to go with music, you know, not just like, this song and this song and this song, but trying to create an arc of energy throughout the night and trying to get creative with how uh, <clears throat> the musical experiences. So I decided 
decided that uh, I needed to start my own group, you know, and uh, there were so many great players in the area at that point and even more so now that I figured I could just call my friends and put together bands and uh, just start my own group. So I, uh, you know, was, first was Dave Watts Trio, Dave Watts Quartet, Quintet, Sextet, yada, yada. And eventually I just decided to call it the Dave Watts Motet. So I wouldn't have to keep changing the poster, you know, just keep it that way for, for however long. And, uh, which was about a couple of years. And then right before we made our first record, uh, decided to change it to just the motet. And what were your aspirations, you know, ultimately, I mean, did you want to, become this huge band or did you want to just kind of be successful enough where it could support you? Or did you want to make sure that you could be creative and, and damn the masses or what was your. Yeah. Yeah. I think damn the masses is a good way to look at it. You know, I definitely didn't um, have an agenda of of success, you know, it was more like, well, uh, I just want to play the music that, makes me satisfied i want to walk off stage and be like you know like i said like a cathartic experience i want to feel like i'm growing something over time you know i want to feel like i have an ability to be creative whenever i want to you know if if i have three or four songs on the back burner that i'm working on when i get home from a tour that i can start to mess around with then i'm happy you know what i mean i feel like i've got something um purposeful going on but if i feel like uh i gotta learn like all these different songs by all these different artists you know for my weekends shows coming up and i've got to play all these cover tunes or i've got to play like you know at one point i remember i was in like four different bands that all had a song called gravity i'm like i can't keep track of this shit man you know it's like i I just want to play my own music I'm not looking forward to that, you know? So uh, for me, it's like, if I have my own tunes that I'm working on that, like I'm inspired to get creative with and that, you know, sort of like pushes uh, my own creative envelope, then, then I feel like I'm, you know, I'm happy. I got something to wake up for. Um, So there wasn't an agenda of success more than just, I want to be able to make a living, you know, I want to like support my family tour to a certain degree uh and um you know and see where it gets me and also play with players that i'm inspired by and pushed you know by and and like that can um that also want to just you know try and push the envelope with creativity and that sort of thing so i just you know it's not it wasn't a very specific you know concept but uh once you sort of set those wheels in motion, then things, you know, fall into place and then you kind of follow the path. You know, at first we were, I had two different percussionists in the group. So we were doing a lot of Afro-Cuban, Afro-Brazilian, uh, West African, you know, we would do drum pieces and, you know, rhythm pieces and traditional music of uh, Santeria and that sort of thing. That was early days of Motet. And, uh, you know, and that was just due to the players we had in the band at that point. And so we just went down that path and, you know, eventually different players need to do different things and split off. And then we would go down a different path and mix it up a little more, you know, and try some different stuff, you know, that's where doing those Halloween shows really, like I said, informed more sort of, funk 70s funk horn-based sound that we've gotten into you know was the first album breathe or play because i see okay yeah yeah breathe was the first one play was the second one but both of those have a lot of that sort of west african afro-cuban sound you know and our singer jans was great at singing in different languages you know lukumi and uh, some of the Nigerian dialects and, uh, you know, Spanish and that sort of thing. So, you know, that's the path we took because of the players in the band and, and because we were 
inspiring each other to to try this music that we'd never really done before. Uh, and it's, it's kind of always been like that, you know, and now we're, our latest record we put out is all instrumental and uh, no horn section, you know, so it's, uh, you know, it's something different for us still. And that's what sort of lights a fire for us. It gets us excited and makes us, you know, pushes us to like try different things. You know, it's, I can't imagine ever being in a sort of rut where you're just um, recreating your own sound, you know, imitating yourself, you know, that can be the curse of having a big hit, you know, you get yeah obligated. Yeah. Right. Um, that was definitely the demise of some of the better funk and disco groups from back in the day. Yeah. Um, especially with the label pressure. Yeah. Right. Um, were there any uh, bands that you can point to that were sort of like, uh, somewhat templates for what you wanted to do or were, you know, inspirational in terms of, you know, I kind of like what they're doing. I kind of want to follow a similar path. Yeah. I mean, I think all the bands in the jam scene that were sort of blowing up like Galactic and Lettuce, Oregon, um, Snarky, like when we see these bands that are, that are being uber creative and, you know, becoming popular and finding success. That's really like an inspiration for us. I mean, uh, every, every genre that we've sort of uh, explored has its own groups that are inspiring. You know, we would see, we would play jazz Aspen and see, you know, a Cuban group like Cubanismo play. And, uh, and it was just like, wow that's you know you see them live and it's just like mind is blown and then you're like okay we're gonna try some of that you know what i mean like so there's been so many different groups that are uh you know that are inspirational to us i think that when we see a band live this is why i like going to festivals so much you know you see a band live and it's just like oh and you really feel it you know what i mean especially in our scene seeing like ghost note lives just like so inspiring man you know their their energy and their arrangements and you know every time i see sput it's just blows my mind you know or being yeah i gotta get mono neon on too yeah yeah get him on man i'm sure he's got a lot to say his you know his dad was a bass player for the bar case so he's got he's got that in his family um being on Jam Cruise, I just saw uh, this group, Simonde. Do you know Simonde? They have a song called Brothers on the Slide. They recorded probably in 1972, maybe. Oh, yeah, that old band. Yeah, the old band. Yeah. They're still-, They're still around. And it's like, as far as I could tell, all original members. Like these guys were older. They were probably in their late 60s, early 70s. They were, they were doing shows with like Mandrill and stuff back then. Yes, yes. They're a Trinidadian living in um, London. Man, they were so good. So good. When you hear a band like that, their their pocket and their relaxed feel and the way they can just own a groove is incredibly inspiring. That was one of those experiences where I listened to the band, you know, went down that rabbit hole before we got on Jam Cruise just to like really dig into the music, but none of it compared to the live experience. Like, Yeah, they're they're an eclectic band, but I'm glad you mentioned them. I'm gonna, yeah, look into that, knowing that they're still doing stuff. Still doing it. Very cool. Still very cool. Oh, you know, I find an interesting phenomenon in that a lot of the best funk or more prominent funk bands now are mostly like white guys, and you know, um, I'm not sure how or why that happened, but. It seems similar to kind of what happened with blues. Um, but the difference to me is with blues, you had all these rock, uh, blues-based rock bands that blew up in terms of how popular they were and, and got into the mainstream. But funk, even though it's moved over and been embraced that way, is still kind of under the radar and not oh, blowing yeah. up like that yeah. did. And I'm just wondering why that is, you know? I don't know. It's crazy to listen to um, the live recordings of, like, earth wind and fire from a 75 and they're like in an arena 
You know what I mean? People just go on ape shit for their music. You know, and it's just like that. I think eighties, the eighties did a lot of damage <laughs> to certain bands, you know, and to certain genres. And and uh, yeah, funk music didn't do well with like programmed drums and that sort of thing. And it's like it's such a feel-oriented music that it was, um, you know, and brand, bands like Brand New Heavies and Modesky Martin and Wood and those groups were coming out in the in the '90s and Jamiroquai. Uh, that to me is when funk came back because you started hearing the organic instruments you started hearing all the analog stuff coming back you started hearing like you know the players playing in a way that wasn't quantized it seems like maybe with with the sort of the black influence that went down hip-hop you know hip-hop is where the sort of like african-american influence went and then for funk it's like a lot of younger guys listening to it now just being like oh that's what i want to play and i don't know why it's like divided with black or white but it seems like in the 70s it's like it was there was so much singing going on with the black groups you know like that's one of my favorite parts about funk was the vocals and then um and of course the grooves but when hip-hop came out and I'm not like trying to diss on, you know, any particular genre. It's just, that's not my cup of tea. So I don't, I've never gotten into hip hop and I'm not really into rep- repetitious grooves, you know, and that's what I hear a lot with hip hop. It's just the groove is, you know, one, two, four bars. And then it's just over and over again, you know, it's just not interesting to me. And then with rap, it's like, I'd rather hear singers, you know, I'd rather hear people three or four part harmonies going on you know what i mean like that to me is like the beautiful part of music you know so um it's for me it's it's disappointing that like maybe a lot of artists who would have been you know singing and doing that sort of thing uh you know if they're being influenced by hip-hop or less inclined to explore that side of music you know for me, I mean, the playing of bands like you guys and Snarky and Lettuce and a lot of the ones you mentioned is at a level of the masters. I mean, you know, it is authentic in its funk influence. And I'm trying to help open the eyes and ears to some of the maybe, you know, for lack of a better term, old school people who maybe yeah. like old school funk to know that authentic funk is still alive and still being made and they're still creativity pushing it forward yeah yeah that's great i mean i appreciate you know? that i'm yeah. with you <laughs> i hope that it's not like a uh you know it's like dying out by any means i think it'll always be there to what degree you'll um you'll hear it you know like i said like you used to hear this music on the radio mm-hmm. pop radio now it's like i i can't put on the radio you know it's like there's no music that interests me at all on the radio you know or like when i when i see the difference between prince playing the super bowl and rihanna playing the super bowl you know what i mean like it's like come on man it's like for a musician the difference and a performer it's like you know i'm not trying to diss on anybody but it's just so stark the difference in musicality what's happening musically you know what I mean? It seems like people's interest in music has more to do with like lyrics and a show and a visual aspect than it does all the things that I consider to be music, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> Harmony yeah. and rhythm and, you know. <laughs> I still, I still, despite all that, I still have belief that if people are exposed to the real, that they will begin to understand and gravitate towards it. I think that in a lot of cases, they're just not exposed to it. Yeah. Nowadays. Well, yeah, hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, we'll go play like a festival that's, you know, based around EDM and I'll meet some kid who's like, you know, 20 years old. And he's like, I've never seen a band before. You guys are so cool. <laughs> you know, like, and they've been going to festivals for like 
five years or whatever, but it's been all EDM. It's been all electronic and they're just so blown away by people playing instruments, you know? So like, yeah, I, I, I feel like when people are exposed to it, when they see it, it's just the difference is stark and they're just, Oh, you know, open their minds are opened up, but, um, you know, people it's choose your own adventure now, you know, with, with, with Spotify, YouTube and all that, you just, it's not like you hear what someone tells you you're going to hear. Like it used to be back in the day, you know? Well, except for the algorithms that if you're listening to like today's music, it's just going to keep feeding that. True. True. Yeah. I mean, and, and that's the thing. Yeah. The algorithms and, and your, you know, your friends or whatever, if, if you're just an EDM kid, that's never, you know, checked out live music, then yeah, it's easy to stay in that bubble, you know? So it's like, um, you're exposed to more music than ever, but it can also be insular, you know? So yeah, I, I think there's always going to be a place for live music. Sometimes I, you know, I, I fear that, um, some of these great musicians are going to learn how to do Ableton and that sort of thing and not become a, you know, like a legendary musician like they would have 20 years ago because, uh, you know, the influences are different now. So For me, though, I mean, you know, being a diet in the wolf funk guy um, <clears throat> and seeing how it almost came to a death in the late 80s, early 90s, yeah, and there's just so little of it happening. If it wasn't Prince or George Clinton, yeah, I mean, um, carrying the torch. So when this wave came, you know, the festival bands and stuff. I mean, it's yeah. like such a breath of fresh air and so reassuring and just yeah, you know, gosh, yeah, yeah. No, it's interesting how the jam scene has a lot to do with that, which is, I can appreciate. You know, especially having been sort of at the beginnings of all that. Uh, just appreciate that that's the scene that I'm in and that our audiences love, love that, you know? Yeah. There's much more to this great truth and rhythm interview. Just continue on to the next part of the episode. Also be sure to subscribe to this channel. If you've already done so, please share it with friends and become a member by joining truth and rhythm on Patreon or consider donating at funkinstuff.net. Thank you very much.